0: There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counterpunch. <laughs> Boom.
1: Boom. Whoa, Rachman, get up. we oh. 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 Iron. one are going through This is for the championship
2: of the world. I expect a tough, clean fight. Protect yourself at all times. Any questions in the challengers? Welcome, Fight Fans. It's time for the main event of the week. It is Episode 5 of the Fight City Podcast. I'm your host, Alden Kodash, soon to be joined very shortly by Michael Carbert, the Editor-in-Chief of TheFightCity.com, and he'll be here to discuss the biggest Fight of this weekend, Usyk versus Bellew. Alexander Usyk's brilliant one punch knockout of Bellew in the eighth round in front of thousands in the Manchester Arena. We'll also be talking about some of the biggest upcoming fights of this weekend and also a look back at Aaron Pryor versus Alexis Arguello 1, the 1980s Ring Magazine fight of the decade fought in the Orange Bowl of Miami. And it's going to be a great look back with Michael on this. So stay tuned for some great boxing content. And we welcome our co-host Michael Carbert to the show, the editor-in-chief of thefightcity.com. How are you tonight, Michael?
0: I'm doing great, Alden. How are you?
2: I'm doing very well, and uh, we had a great weekend of boxing this weekend, uh, punctuated by Alexander Usyk's eighth-round knockout victory. Not a technical knockout, a 10-count knockout of Tony Bellew, the first time Bellew's been stopped since his, loss, since his knockout defeat to Adonis Stevenson in 2013. What is your first impression of that victory?
0: Well, it 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 doesn't come as a shock to me uh, as we discussed before. Uh, previously, Alden, uh, we were in agreement that uh, we expected Usyk to win the fight, um, and so uh, what was interesting, I guess, about the match was how Belou uh, performed well. He he he. It was a, it was competitive. I, I'm not sure I agree with the scorecards that had Belou. Ahead on points uh, yep. after, after seven rounds, I'm not sure I buy that, but uh, but it was competitive, it was interesting, uh, but in the end, it just demonstrated that Usyk is, you know, in my opinion, like a full level above in terms of talent, ability, at least at this point in time. I mean, Balu's arguably, you know, past his prime, um, you know, while meanwhile, Usyk is in his prime he's probably entering his peak um so it's it's not a shock uh in terms of the outcome in terms of how the uh, the, how the match unfolded um but it it solidifies the fact that uh Usyk is i don't think there can be much debate about this i think he's 2018's fighter of the year and um and of course as I'm sure you're interested in discussing, uh, the future looks very exciting for Alexander Usyk.
2: Yeah, I think there's little question that he's 2018's fighter of the year. It's hard to say any fighter uh, throughout the last five years, or at least as long as I can remember, that's any more qualified to be the fighter of the year than Alexander Usyk is this year. I mean, he just showed a little bit of everything. He overcame adversity in beating Maris Prietas in January of this year, he completely overwhelmed Murat Gassiev, who many gave a very good shot to win the title or win all the titles at Cruiserweight. Uh, and then he just put the icing on the cake with Tony Bellew, that one-punch knockout. Uh, broke him down, but he still finished him with one shot that not many people were expecting him to uh, be able to get the job done with. He didn't really come into the fight a renowned puncher. And Tony Bellew is a guy who stood up to David Hayes' best punches, despite the fact that is well past his prime. But a guy that's fought at heavyweight, a big cruiserweight, if that. Um, and he blew him out of there with a hard, looping overhand weff in the eighth round. So yeah, I mean, the, the future looks very bright at heavyweight. I can think of several fights I'd want to see him in against at heavyweight uh, if he does choose to commit and go up there. The question is, uh, from a strategic standpoint, who does he risk it for the first time against? I mean, the heavyweight division doesn't have moderately sized heavyweights uh, to a great extent anymore in the top 10. I mean, maybe you could come up with Bryant Jennings uh, or Alexander Povietkin, but uh Besides that, I mean, you're dealing with Dillian white, six foot four over 240. Uh, you've got Luis Ortiz, another six foot four, big guy, two forty, two fifty, maybe even heavier. And then you have the real giants and wilder and Joshua. It just doesn't get any, uh, any, any less drastic than some of those guys, uh, to his credit, Usyk is six foot three, but he's never fought at heavyweight before. I think he's only weighed over uh, 200 pounds once in his career. Uh, who would you like to see him step in the ring with first?
0: Well, to be completely honest, I would prefer that he didn't move up to heavyweight. I would prefer he stayed at cruiserweight. I mean, there's still some some meaningful fights. Um, he could rematch some of the guys that, that he's already uh, beaten. Um, the, the, presently, the World Boxing Super Series is doing another cruiserweight tournament. Um, the winner of that tournament against Usyk would be very attractive. I don't care who's the winner of the tournament, but I mean, I know we got a bogus decision uh, this past weekend in, uh, with Bre- Bredis, uh being the beneficiary. But to my mind, is it, is it for confirmed, a confirmed fact that this is it for him at cruiserweight? Is he definitely moving up to heavyweight in his next outing?
2: I can't say if it's a confirmed fact, it, it almost seemed like an implied fact when he was taking the fight against Bellu that the fight would be at heavyweight, given the fact that Bellu's last two fights were against David Hay uh, at heavyweight. I I was actually, <laughs> I, I feel a little uninformed, but I was actually out of the loop that this was a cruiserweight title defense until I was watching the fight. I thought that this was going to be Usyk's first fight at heavyweight. I saw it was a cruiserweight defense. I think it still made the same point as if he was fighting... At heavyweight, I mean, there's really not much of a difference between 210 and 199 pounds. I think it just comes down to a little dehydration to make weight. Uh, but, of course, I'm, I'm not a boxer, so I can't really provide the most accurate perspective there. But, you know, I, I thought that this would be an adequate introduction to the heavyweight division. I just thought that Bell use a small enough heavyweight, heavyweight given the fact that his last two fights were at heavyweight, that this would be a good transition fight. but. Now, given the fact that he's done everything you, you really can do besides rematch some of the WBSS cruiserweights, like you mentioned, it, it seems like, given the stake that Matroom and DAZN have in the heavyweight division right now with Anthony Joshua, uh, that it would be the logical choice to follow the money and go to heavyweight. That being said, there's still a lot of great fights at cruiserweight, but I'm not sure who could really challenge him at cruiserweight right now.
0: Agreed. But at the same time, uh, you know, he, he is definitely the best cruiserweight in the world. There's no question. And and yes, the the possible matchups don't strike us at this point in time as as being particularly threatening for him. And so, yes, it's natural when a fighter reaches a certain level and uh, of success, you want to see him take the next challenge, take the next risk. And all, and I know there's people out there already talking up like an Usyk versus Joshua fight, you know, but Usyk himself has stated he's not ready yet for a guy like Anthony Joshua. And uh, again, I'm not entirely clear whether the thinking is his very next fight is going to be at heavyweight or whether he's going to slowly work his way towards heavyweight or what. Um, but if, you know, if, if, you know, hypothetically, I were his manager and could call the shots. I would be angling for uh, maximizing uh, the situation at cruiserweight, and as we discussed before, seeing if he could lure some of the big names at one seventy-five to come up and challenge him. I mean, I would love to see um, uh, Usyk versus Elider Alvarez, for example, uh, or Badu Jack. Or, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of great matches uh, if, that could happen if, if some of those guys that light heavyweight wanted to step up and challenge him. Um, so, you know, my answer to the question is is I, I would prefer that he stays at cruiserweight and we see some of the great matchups that are possible if he stays put. If he moves up to heavyweight, I just, you know, you're talking – Okay, here. Let me put it this way. Just within the last several hours, I have seen a photograph of Mikey Garcia having a face-to-face with Errol Spence Jr. As you know, they're going to yeah. fight, right? it's uh, just been announced. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> there they are, face-to-face. And standing between them is Lennox Lewis. And I'm sorry, but it looks... From the photograph, it looks to me like Errol Spence should be fighting Lennox Lewis, not Mikey Garcia. I mean, we hate we have weight classes in boxing for a reason, and I don't see how Mikey Garcia is going to be able to compete with Errol Spence Jr. when you when you see the two of them together, the the difference in size is just it's beyond striking. It's it it just seems to me to, to, to make the fight kind of almost laughable. Now I wouldn't say that's the case if Usyk moves up to heavyweight and takes on a guy like uh Dillian white, but at the same time, he's probably going to be giving away a good 20, 25 pounds of solid weight. And, uh, you can't, you can't overlook that. So, You run the risk of him going into matches where his skill set is potentially going to be neutralized by the physical advantages of of men who are naturally bigger and stronger. And uh, so my preference would be, you know, my, my message to Usyk, if anyone asked, would be, what's the rush? What's the hurry? Take it easy. Why not capitalize on everything you've achieved so far? Uh, See how many title defenses you can put together uh, in in a dominant. Why not establish yourself as the greatest cruiserweight champion of all time, you know, on par with Evander Holyfield um, before, before worrying about going up to the heavyweight division. That would be my thinking, but what do I know?
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's definitely hard to argue with that. You, um, if he does choose to go up to heavyweight, he runs the risk of ending up potentially like Bob Foster did. Uh, one of the greatest light heavyweights of all time, but couldn't pull off a significant victory at heavyweight. It was blown away by Ali and Joe Frazier. Uh, but then again, he could also fare as Evander Holyfield did when he moved up to heavyweight at a relatively similar point in his career. Made the move up, dominated Michael Dokes, uh, after won the title from Buster Douglas. So it's really something of a, a of a um, of a crapshoot for Alexander Usyk, and it really hinges on whether or not he can take the punches that a Dillian White or heavier can throw at him. And not all these guys are are slouches. Some of them can actually use their size and their punching power rather effectively, and that increases the danger for Usyk, in my opinion.
0: I agree. I agree. Uh, as far as I can tell, there haven't been any definite decisions yet um, made yet as to what he's going to do next. So we just have to wait and see. But I am encouraged by the fact that he has has stated flatly that he's not ready yet for a guy like Anthony Joshua. As much as that would be a huge fight right now um, in England. After, I mean. Uh, after, after beating Tony Ballou, there's no question that right now Alexander Usyk is a popular guy in the U.K., and a fight with, uh, with Anthony Joshua would be huge. But obviously Joshua still has some, some plans for himself uh, moving forward. And, uh, and as I say, Usyk has stated, no, I'm not quite ready for that yet. So at least there's some, uh, some sensible thinking going on there. And um, as I say, I hope he chooses for the time being to, to stay where he's at and reap the, reap the rewards of what he's accomplished thus far.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a fight that's right there for the taking. If he wants the Joshua fight, I'm sure Eddie Hearn and uh, DeZone, they would love to make it happen. First of all, because they can, and second of all, because... As of right now, it might not be that big of a risk for Joshua given the immense size advantage and the fact that even Usyk uh, realizes he'd probably be a little bit in over his head, stepping in the ring right away with Anthony Joshua. Uh, so so kudos to him there in, in not taking an eight-figure payout, most likely, uh, to fight Joshua in his hometown and cash out too early uh, because it's a fight that can definitely ruin the streak that he's going towards right now. So... Recently on the Fight City, we had a brilliant interview posted about Alex Saucedo, and he is challenging Maurice Hooker for the WBO Junior Welterweight Championship of the World this weekend, this Friday. Uh, It's a very good interview. I highly recommend checking it out. Also from the Fight City, we'll have live coverage this coming weekend, against uh excuse me in philadelphia featuring jaron ennis undefeated against raymond serrano any any uh any insights on these two matchups
0: yeah well there's some interesting fights coming up this weekend and as you mentioned one of them is features alex asito and today's uh feature post on the fightcity.com is an exclusive interview uh and profile um of uh, Alex Cicido by our own Z- Zachary Alapi and uh, it's an excellent piece. I recommend everybody to check it out and it uh, talks about uh, Cicido as potentially being the gaudi of Oklahoma and uh, explores the fact that um, kind of like uh, Terrence Crawford is doing in Omaha um, Cicido is building up a fan base and a following in his home city of Oklahoma. And there hasn't been a world champion in Oklahoma since Sean O'Grady. And that's going back more than 30 years. So, um, uh, and, and then, you know, the article explores how this past June we saw a barn burner of a fight between Cicido and Lenny Zappavigna. um, that is definitely in the running for fight of the year. And by the way, 2018 has been an awesome year for action fights. So that's saying a lot. Um, so uh, Zach, uh, you know, asks Sacito some questions about, you know, how much punishment do you want to take? And is that how you want your career to go? Because that fight with uh, Zeppa Vigna was definitely a punishing, brutal uh, slugfest. Uh, it's an interesting article. It's, uh, I r- highly recommend it. And, um, and it's going to be interesting to see if Cicido can pull off another big win and get his first world title belt. This is an important fight for him um, and an interesting uh, uh, fight card. Um, with By the way, Cletus Selden is on the undercard. And just last week, Alden, we were talking about Eve Ulysses. And uh, how he had that breakout performance on HBO against Cletus Selden, the Hebrew hammer. Uh, So interesting to note that Selden is making his comeback fight on the undercard against one Nelson Lara, who uh, sports a 17 and 10 record. Uh, He's coming from Nicaragua to, uh, to give Selden his rebound fight. Sounds like a good idea. And uh, what, what else is going on this weekend?
2: Yeah, so as we mentioned earlier, we have Gerard Ennis and uh, Raymond Serrano. The one right. fight that uh, I have a little bit of stake in, given the fact that I interviewed Jarrell Big Baby Miller a couple weeks back at the press conference to their fight right before Danny Jacobs' fight against Sergey Derevyanchenko, is Jarrell Big Baby Miller's quote-unquote title fight against Bogdan Dinu for the WBA regular title that was stripped away from Manuel Char for PED usage. He has a six-month suspension does Char. Now, Now Miller has the opportunity to win that title against Bogdan Dinu and hopefully put himself in the mix for some of the best fights in the heavyweight division coming up. So before we go any further, Bring in Jerrell Big Baby
1: Miller.
2: So, anyways, I'm gonna start the interview off. If you don't mind, you gotta tell me what did you do to Fresno Kendo to scare him out of a half million dollar comeback fight?
1: Ah, uh, man, I ain't do anything, man. I, I don't, I don't know the whole situation about friends You know, uh, you know, I know I definitely would have beat you know, but he's a good dude. I mean, nothing much I can really say about that. You know, uh, they offered Trevor Bryan, you know, way more than that, and Trevor Bryan team turned down the fight. And uh, Don King wasn't able to get to the phone. So I don't know, man, it's, it's boxing. You know, there's a lot of weird stories and shenanigans behind closed doors. Um, but you know, I got I to got zone in. You know, I'm starting to zone in already Monday. Uh, you know, coming off a good win. So my body feels great. I feel phenomenal. So let's get back to work.
2: So on November 17th, you'll be fighting for the WBA regular championship. So what does it mean to you be what does it mean to you to be fighting for a championship after years of calling out
1: the big dogs? I mean, it's, it's great. You know, um, you know, I'm not too big-headed about it. You know, I'm just kind of staying at the same level. A lot of work to be done. You know, I'm, 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 I know I'm going to get this win. I've been working hard for it, mentally focused for it. But I know this, it's a bigger picture, the end of the road, and win Kansas. So I'm going to follow the yellow big road and keep it moving.
2: So if you win the title on November 17th, how do you view your prospects going forward? Do you think it'll be a little easier to lure some of the fellow champions into the ring with you finally?
1: Um, I don't know. You know, I think, uh, you know, Deontay, he's chasing the money right now. He's not finding anybody that's really going to put any damage to his record. Uh, AJ's kind of trying to stay busy, easy fights now. Um, Tyson Fury, there's no money fighting Tyson. You know, Tyson needs Deontay. Uh, a whole lot more than Deontay needs Tyson, you know what I mean? So I think Tyson Fury got to get a win here. If not, you know, he'll go back on a bomb burner again.
2: So if Wilder Joshua actually gets made for April of next year, I'm not sure if uh, – I know there's an open date in Wembley. Yeah. Who do you have winning, and who personally would you like to fight more?
1: Uh, I think the, uh, AJ at this point. More money, more recognition. Um, you know, just go for that go for that win, and then from there we fight Deontay. Yeah.
2: All right, thank you, Jarrell. No problem, man. So, Michael, what do you think of Miller's chances going forward to unify the heavyweight division or even win a significant title at heavyweight?
0: It's very hard to say, Alden, uh, because we haven't really seen Miller up against, uh, you know, truly top-notch competition yet. There's no doubt the guy can fight a bit. There's no doubt the guy is carries a significant size and weight advantage in almost every fight he has. Uh Bogdan Dinu, I a- I actually had the pleasure of meeting him uh here in Montreal a couple of times. Um I'm familiar with his with uh, you know the crew around Dinu. He's he's uh he's a, Ruma- a Romanian fighter and has some association with um with Lucian uh, um and um, but I don't see how Bogdan Dino can can compete with Big Baby Miller just from uh, the perspective of size, as as in Miller's last fight. Um, you know, Miller is probably going to be sporting at least a fifty or sixty or seventy pound weight advantage. I mean, it's just crazy. I don't, you know, it, it's borderline criminal. Um. So, number one, to answer your question, Miller is a threat to any heavyweight just by virtue of the size and weight that he brings to the ring. But number two, for me, he's kind of an unproven talent. We need to see him against stiffer opposition. I don't think Dinu qualifies as that. Yeah, I don't think
2: so either. Um, But at the same time, it's a chance to get his name on one of those paper championships that could just maybe sell a fight a little bit better, maybe uh, make himself the mandatory for Anthony Joshua's WBA title. If a uh, fight between Joshua and Wilder falls through in the future, that could be a logical, possibly safer fight than Deontay Wilder uh, in terms of taking on Jarrell baby, big baby Miller. Um, So I think it's important that he win a title although this is not a very important title to win. It's, it's one that certainly gets his name on the ballot for future big heavyweight fights. Um,
0: now if, if I may, Alden, I just want to put out a shout for the, uh, you mentioned the fight card happening in Philadelphia. The headline fight is Jaron Ennis versus Raymond Serrano, a welterweight fight, 10 rounds. And, um, serrano or sorry ennis is undefeated 21 wins 19 knockouts he's a rising talent and uh we're going to have the FightCity.com is going to have our man joshua izzard ringside covering that match for us so so readers of the fight city can look forward to a detailed report on the main event from the philadelphia card this coming weekend
2: power to it you on ennis undefeated welterweight looking to make a statement in philadelphia the city of brotherly love and actually i was in philadelphia last week officiating a few fights on an amateur card i refereed a few fights actually refereed a couple heavyweights (laughs) um
1: good for you yeah it was
2: uh quite an experience there and no shortage of fight fans in philadelphia that's for sure
0: now let me just—we got to paint the picture here, Alden. How, how much I'm do you about weigh? One
2: hundred and fifty pounds, soaking
0: wet, as they would say. Soaking yeah. wet, yeah. <laughs> so I bet you had your hands full dealing with some Definitely heavyweights. Not easy right? to
2: separate, but you have to really emphasize your verbal commands to get them to do what you say.
0: Uh, well, if Mills Lane could handle uh, Jerry Cooney and Davy Pearl could handle heavyweights, I don't know if you remember Davy Pearl. He's yeah, a small yeah. guy. I bet you did. I bet you did all yeah. right.
2: <laughs> well, Mills Lane could handle anyone. I mean, he—you uh, he yeah, rub Mills sure Lane enough. the wrong way, even if you're Mike Tyson, fuming red against Evander Holyfield in a rematch. Mills Lane will have a handle on it.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Yeah. So anyway, as we, uh, as we we go into our last segment of the show, we have a real treat as the FightCity.com released a. Boxiana throwback article highlighting Aaron Pryor's first fight against Alexis Arguello, the fight of the decade of the 1980s. Since this is your article, Michael, do you uh, mind sharing a little bit about it?
0: Oh, not at all. Of course, uh, Aaron Pryor versus Alexis Arguello is one of the great rivalries in boxing history, even though they only fought twice. Um, but it's an historic rivalry. It's amazing uh, and kind of heartbreaking in a way to realize that they're both now gone Um, but uh, they gave us two incredibly action packed memorable battles in 1982 and 1983 and uh, as I write uh, in my piece um, part of what made the first fight so interesting was that Alexis Arguello was on the cusp of becoming a major, major star. Uh, he had had a number of matches broadcast on free television, you know, national television. Uh, title defenses against guys like Andy Ganigan and uh, Ray Mancini, and uh, he was he was some he was not yet. Um, a crossover star. He wasn't a pay-per-view star. Of course, they didn't have pay-per-view then, it would be closed circuit. But, but he was on the verge of becoming, of joining, say, Sugar Ray Leonard uh, and and Larry Holmes and some of the big, huge names. And uh, this was kind of supposed to be his coming out party. And that, there's you know, it wasn't an accident that the fight took place in Miami. And, of course, there was a huge pro-Argueo crowd Meanwhile, Aaron Pryor, he was he had always been overlooked, but he was a phenomenal talent, and he was so good that he actually had to leave the lightweight division just to get a title shot. He had to move up to one hundred and forty pounds to get any to make you know to in in order to move forward with his career. And so you're talking about a fighter with a chip on his shoulder who just knew that there was no way he could lose this fight. And everybody was ready for Arguello to win. Pryor was the underdog. And as Pryor said before the fight, if he loses, meaning Arguello, he's still a champion because he still has a lightweight title belt. But if I lose, I I lose everything. And that's exactly how Pryor fought. Pryor fought like a man possessed. Pryor fought like a man who knew everything was on the line for him. And I just think it's – Terribly unfair that a lot of people still think that the outcome of the fight had a lot to do with Panama Lewis and the bottle that he, quote, unquote, mixed, which he called for after the 13th round and which Pryor drank from, didn't spit, but swallowed. And then he tore out after Arguello at the bell for the 14th round and stopped him. And um, i just always felt that it's unfair that 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 controversy overshadows Pryor's performance because the fact of the matter is Pryor was winning that fight almost from the first round on. There was never a point in the fight when Arguello was ahead. There was never a point in the fight where Arguello was on the verge of a knockout win. That was Pryor's night. It was Pryor's fight. It was akin to when Roberto Duran challenged Sugar Ray Leonard back in June of 1980, and that was Duran's night. As close as the fight was, and it was deadly close, it was Duran who imposed his will and shaped the fight, and it was the same with Pryor versus Arguello. Pryor was the one calling the tune, and it was a sensational win, and then it must be noted, Pryor reinforced his, his, his superiority, the fact that he just had Arguello's number, in the rematch, when in fact, if you watch it closely, Arguello performs better than he did in the first fight. He wins more rounds, more decisively in the rematch. But again, Pryor's just too much. His combination of speed, power, his ability to throw punches from bizarre angles, unceasing aggression. It was just too much for Arguello. And so I, I've always felt that Pryor deserves more credit than he otherwise gets for that monumental victory in Miami.
2: it's, It's very unfortunate because he until his first victory over Alexis Arguello and even, even a little bit after, uh, to some extent, he's always been an afterthought in the boxing world. And he's done so much. He dominated, he had a terrific amateur career, dominated, um, Tommy Hearns as an amateur. Uh, many believe he deserved to go to the Olympics, dropping a decision to Howard Davis, who went on to win the, uh, yeah, Howard, Howard Jr. 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 went on Jr. to win the yeah. Val Barker Outstanding Boxer Championship in um, Montreal in '76 to just go and face a sporting icon like Alexis Arguello. He he not only fought like a guy who was uh, fighting for his future to make a living. I mean, as you as you mentioned mentioned earlier, he uh, you know Arguello loses, he's still a champion. He was still a champion, but Pryor had no other option but to win but he was also fighting uh, the embodiment of everything he wasn't. Uh, Alexis Arguello was was one of the most influential figures uh, in Latin America, just moving away from the Sandinista movement. He captured the imagination of thousands, probably 10,000s in Miami when they fought uh, in their first fight. Could you tell us a little bit more about the situation that Arguello was was up against in terms of the Sandinistas and Nicaragua?
0: Oh, wow. Uh, I wasn't expecting that question. I, I would want to revisit the timeline. I know that uh, at some point um, after the revolution, Arguello journeyed back to Nicaragua, and he was involved in in the insurgency against the uh now the sandinistas were the were the were the were against the revolution so he i think and and he would have joined them and uh, and then after many years after that um he was involved in politics He he ran for office, did he not, in Nicaragua. And then he died under suspicious circumstances that some believe, uh, you know, the official verdict is he committed suicide, but some believe that his death had something to do with the politics going on in Nicaragua at the time. So, um, yeah, I think that the, the defeat to Pryor, has a lot to do with, with everything that came after in Alexis Arguello's life. The, the fact that you can't, it, you can't overstate the, the, uh, how do I put it? What, what was so close, what was so close to Arguello that he could, he could almost touch it. It was almost there. And that was superstardom. We're talking some becoming something, uh, becoming a figure who's almost bigger than boxing, at least for Latin American uh, sports fans. It was there for the taking. It was well, it wasn't there for the taking, but it was it was almost in his grasp, and all he had to do was beat Aaron Pryor and become the first fighter in boxing history. And we we neglected to mention this because that was part of the significance of the fight. If he won, he, be, he was the first fighter in boxing history to win four world titles in four weight divisions. And again, he was the favorite going into the fight. He was expected by most to win. And so it was a heartbreaking defeat, and it completely changed his life. And the evidence of this is that the very... Uh, Next day or the, or that night at, a, at one of the post fight press conferences, Arguello, who was this model of sportsmanship, he was known as being so classy, uh, got up and blamed his defeat on Eddie Futch, and said that Eddie Futch had overtrained him, and it would that's a that's a that's a pivotal moment. I think in the life of Alexis Arguello when he showed a completely different side of his personality, he, of course, later apologized. And he later called that one of the worst moments of his life, one of the biggest mistakes of his life to blame Eddie Futch for the defeat. Um, But it, but it definitely reveals that the, that he was not prepared for defeat, even though he had lost major fights before he was not an undefeated fighter. Yes, and he had lost his first attempt to win a world title um, before, then later rebounding and beating Ruben Alvarez and becoming a great champion. So, uh, but but yes, ever after the the losses to Aaron Pryor, his his life was erratic. His career was erratic. He retired. He came back. He retired again. And, yes, he went back to Nicaragua and was involved in some way, shape, or form with the ongoing civil war there. And then later uh, he tried to become a, a major public figure, and um, in some way, shape, or form, that led to his premature death. So there, the story remains to be told. Not all, I don't believe that all of the truth has come out yet on what happened with Alexis Arguello after his, his boxing career ended um but uh i'm hoping you know maybe somebody uh someone somewhere will 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 investigate the whole story and give us give us the real uh the truth the truth of what happened i mean his his death um i mean i find it hard to believe that he committed suicide um and many others are of the same uh, thinking. At the very least, his death was suspicious. And, uh, and I think it was around maybe the we'll never know what really happened.
2: Gatti passed away, if I'm not mistaken. And that was also ruled a suicide under uh, dubious circumstances, many of which uh, many, many of whom doubt that it was indeed a suicide, uh, consistent with how you've described Arguello's passing. Um, it, it is definitely hard to fathom that a warrior like Lessis Arguello uh, took his own life under those strange circumstances that we just don't have the full story to. Um, I just hope the best for him and his family. I know his son was very emotional uh, in many of his interviews just on the issue of uh, his dad's fight with Aaron Pryor and just how much of an emotional toll that took on him to see his dad crying and apologizing to him after he was knocked out in their first fight. I can only imagine what, uh, what losing his father would do to him emotionally. Uh, it's a true tragedy.
0: And, and, yeah. And Alden, you're exactly right. I, I hadn't recalled that. Arturo Gotti and Alexis Arguello both died in the same month, in the month of July yeah, in 2009. Was, um,
2: and they, they also died at the same, similar period of time as uh, Vernon Forrest, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but his death was more definitive, uh, wasn't filled with dubious circumstances. I believe that was a uh, an armed robbery or he got in the way of uh, some criminal activity. It was a sad time for boxing.
0: Well,
2: we can't, we can't, we can't end is, the
0: podcast on this somber note, Alton.
2: <laughs> no, I know, I know. It's, I am uh, getting depressed. It's tough to recall. I just remember HBO's tribute to those great champions uh, right in the same sequence. It was Gaddy, Arguello, and Forrest, all great champions. And, yeah, that is a terrible way to end the podcast. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> let's Let's back up just a little bit and let's – Let's shift the focus just a tiny bit and and go back to the fact that Aaron Pryor, who also is no longer with us, unfortunately, and he died due to a heart condition. And uh, one, you know, uh, I don't think I'm out of line to surmise that his heart condition may possibly have had something to do with um, the, the fact that he struggled for quite a while with an addiction to cocaine. And of course, cocaine can take a great toll on the heart. Um, but Aaron Pryor, as much as his career had its ups and downs and he, and he had his own setbacks and so on outside of the ring. Um, I would want to highlight the fact that in his two fights with Alexis Arguello, he really demonstrated what, an amazing fighter. He was, I mean, if you go back and watch those two fights closely, what a fighter. I mean, not just in terms of his physical gifts, not tr- not just in terms of what he could do, uh, from a technical standpoint, um, which was, you know, he had a style all his own, which he had developed in the amateurs. He was kind of like Manny Pacquiao before Manny Pacquiao. he could, he could, Throw punches from the most unexpected angles, you know, he, when he was off balance, when he was on balance, when he was moving forward, when he was moving back. He was just a, a, a dynamo, a perpetual motion and uh, an incredibly difficult fighter to, to compete against. And he really showed, I think, true ring greatness in those two battles with Alexis Arguello. So I would want to highlight that. As, uh, as something a little more uplifting than dwelling on all the on the morbidity of the situation and of the story of Aaron Pryor and Alexis Arguello, um, and 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 I would also want to mention that Arguello's performances in those two fights were also most noble, most courageous, um, and a lot of and again, a lot of people overlook the fact Arguello performed better in the rematch. The rematch didn't last as long. But Arguello actually had better rounds against Pryor in the rematch than he did in the first fight. Mm-hmm. He hurt Pryor several times in the rematch. And, and in fact, the rematch between Pryor and Arguello can, if we want it to be, uh, it can be an opportunity to uh, take some shots at A guy that some of us like to take shots at, which is Richard Steele, who seemed to pick a most odd or inappropriate moment to stop the action of the fight and deduct a point from Arguello for low blows. Just when Arguello seemed to be almost gaining control of the fight due to his body attack, he was landing some terrific body punches on Pryor and he had Pryor hurting, he had Pryor defensive and Steele decided at that moment to stop the fight, to pause the fight and deduct a point from Arguello for low blows and that discouraged Arguello, it changed the complexion of the fight and, uh, and then of course Pryor rebounded as he did and scored the clean knockout eventually. Although, it should be noted, it was a clean oh, knockout senior. that was, in fact, more of a surrender. As, as Arguello sat on the canvas and looked Steel in the eye and nodded as Steele counted to 10. Arguello nodding as if to say, yes, I know. He got the better of me. It's done. I can't beat him. Um, it was a poignant, uh, poignant moment. Um, and, uh, I just wish there'd been a, a third fight. I mean, those two fights were so great. Um, again, I think, I think they're underrated fights as much as, as much as our versus Pryor one gets a lot of accolades as one of the great fights of the 1980s. Uh, I think I don't, I'm not sure that, that. Many beyond the most hardcore boxing fans really appreciate how great those two fights are. Mind you, Alden, I do feel it's important to point this out. I do think that the Ring Magazine is in error when they call that fight (laughs) the great fight of the decade. uh,
2: Well, Holyfield and Cowley was an amazing fight. Take a guess. Not sure if that win...
0: Yeah, but no, no, no uh, I'll, I'll give you a clue. It happened in the same year, a phenomenal year for action fights. It happened in the same year as Arguello versus Pryor won, so 1982. Um,
2: that was not 81. Uh, no. Holmes Cooney was in.
0: Uh. And Jack Fisk. Jack Fisk was ringside for this fight, which was broadcast on live national television. And Jack Fisk was a longtime fight scribe. And when the fight was over, he said, that might be the greatest fight I've ever seen. It went 15 full rounds. It was held in, I believe, I want to say the Oakland Coliseum, but I'm not completely sure about that. Um but it was on the West Coast. So, so there's, there's a clue for line, you.
2: Michael.
0: The schoolboy, Bobby Chacon, and his fourth fight with Raymond Bazooka-Lamon. Mm-hmm. Sorry, not Raymond, Raphael Bazooka-Lamon. And it was uh, the fight of the year for 1982. So that's important to know because the ring magazine declared Chacon versus Lamon 1982, the fight of the year, same year as uh, Arguello versus prior, but then later yeah, said that Arguello versus prior won as the fight of the decade. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. It seems a little odd. So, uh, but uh, if you have not seen that fight, uh, it was held at the Memorial Auditorium in Sacramento, and uh, it was broadcast on live national television. It is an absolutely amazing battle. If you haven't minutes, seen it, that's you 45 gotta Forty-five minutes
2: it. of hell for boxing fans to watch on YouTube. Yep. Well, fifteen rounds. Minutes, you mean 15 yes, rounds. Yes, that is. Yeah. Never. It's never a dull moment. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a, and, and, well, and, and the thing to remember is, is the, the, the key thing to point out here, Alden, is that I don't know why Hollywood hasn't made a movie yet about Bobby Chicone. because not only is that fight incredible, the fight itself can stand on its own just as one of the great 15-round wars in boxing history, but the story behind the fight is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Now, I, now we've we've already talked for a while here, Alden. I don't want to bore our listeners, but I could talk about Bobby Chacon, uh for another twenty minutes, no problem. And the and the circumstances surrounding his fourth fight with uh, Bazooka Lamone are just it's totally something out of Hollywood. And uh, let's save it. And and when the time comes. We'll talk about it in more detail on another episode of, of our podcast. All
2: right, that about wraps it up for this, the fifth episode of the Fight City Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's new episode of the Fight City Podcast, where we will cover Jarrell Big Baby Miller's title uh, effort against Bogdan Dino, as well as many other great events of this week and in boxing history. Stay tuned.